0: And thank you for that, Jar Jar Binks. All of our regular listeners know that is the incomparable Stephen Alaric, who does the Jar Jar Binks voice for us. And it actually is what got him his role on Broadway playing Simba. So, But we played it today for a very, very special little guest that we have in studio today. For all of you, our new listeners, uh, regular listeners, welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online, 24-7, around the globe. But every Monday, I am right here, AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And today, we have very, very special guests joining us at the half-hour mark, calling in are the co-directors, producers of The Millionaire's Unit, an astounding documentary, an important part of American history. Uh, Ron King and Derek Greer will be calling. But first, we have in studio the fabulous Jenna St. John, Kevin Good, and Chaucer Good. (laughs) Here to talk about Jenna and Kevin's film Dinner with the Alchemist. Our regular listeners know they were last on the show calling in Back in 2016, before the film debuted, had its world premiere, Dances with Films. And it's now in distribution. And they're back.
1: Hello. Thank you for having us. Oh,
0: (laughs) I am thrilled. I am thrilled to have you guys here. And I'm thrilled to have Chaucer here.
1: Say hello, Chaucer.
0: I don't know if Chaucer can say. He's happy with his pacifier. (laughs) But, you know.
1: These are the the brave new world of indie filmmaking slash parenting. It's uh. It's a learning process.
0: Well, you know, and in between making dinner with the alchemist, making Chaucer.
1: <laughs> we can't talk about that on the radio.
0: No, we can't. We can't. We, you know, for FCC rules and we keep, we keep Nick, station owner Nick, very happy. Um, but you also did have done a couple television pilots, Gwendolyn Dangerous and Sexpectation.
2: That is correct.
0: Both yeah. of which also show to Dances with Films this year. Yes. Yeah,
1: we're keeping busy. And so now what we're trying to do, we're doing uh, a couple more episodes of Sexpectations so that we can put it out on our own because we just kind of like to do things. Uh, and <laughs> and then uh, Jenna has a, a, another feature script that we're doing a read-through on um, Thursday. this This Thursday. Actually, that's hopefully going to be the next uh, the next movie that we film. Oh! So it's just the first draft of the script, a little read through.
0: Does it require a baby?
1: It does not require a baby. Never. It, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, Jenna, when you write these things, <clears throat> Jenna is the prolific writer of the two. Hmm. So, and you know, dinner with the alchemist is all about Jenna. So tell for for the, the new listeners and to refresh the memories of our regular listeners who have heard about Dinner with the Alchemist before. Tell everybody what the film is about and it is, it, there are true elements to this, people. And how you came up with this very interesting idea of alchemy and voodoo and murder crossing.
2: Um, I'll talk about how I came upon the story <laughs> first. Um, uh, my sister and I went to New Orleans for a vacation and my sister doesn't drink. So we spend a, a lot of our time there just um, checking out the the good eats. And we're both history buffs. And so um, there's, a, there's a lot of dark history there, a lot of really spooky history. And um, a ton of it just seemed too weird to be true, too spooky to be true. Um, so we were just looking for any evidence of them being real and we came upon the story of um these murders in new orleans um
1: in the in the like microfiche archive of the library right right?
2: yeah and um we just thought this has to be a movie already so of course we looked it up (laughs) and it wasn't so i had to write it
0: you know, how old were the... When did these murders take place? It, was it at the turn of the century?
2: It was. It was between 1902 and
0: 1905. Wow. Yeah. How many murders were there?
2: Uh, I mean, scores. Um, It was for years. And the crazy thing about it is the movie doesn't even touch on... It touches on a very short time period mm-hmm. of these murders. Um. And in the movie, everything is condensed in the timeline. It doesn't take place over the course of several years. Um, But some 27 years later, very similar murders took place. And another, like, 10 years after that, there was another set of murders that took place. And um, they actually caught that guy alive. He was in a mental institution and Y'all think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a survivor from the the second set of murders. It's insane. I mean the whole thing is just crazy. Um this could easily turn into a uh, this what could, is a three movie? A trilogy. A
0: trilogy <laughs> 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 This is what motherhead does to indie filmmakers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sleep deprivation. It's real.
0: It's 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 real. I was gonna call it a three sequel. A three sequel, <laughs> you know, a, a three sequel,
1: a threesome movie, yeah.
0: And Pam is sitting in the engineering booth, trying to contain herself, laughing at this. <laughs> Careful, we're going to let you hold Chaucer. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is just—it's such a fertile area, mm-hmm. and we've seen so many things. You know, Mario Van Peeples has a new series that he just did called Superstition, that brings in the supernatural and the occult and murders and dead people and things like that. And it all stems from down South. Right. I mean, this is, I think it's fascinating, but now with so much to pick from in this timeline of the serial killings, how did you develop your construct for this script and hone in on this idea of the alchemist, you know, Jacques St. Germain. And our voodoo priestess and a brothel, uh huh, of which you're a member.
2: Right. Well, you have to have a brothel if you're going to write about.
0: And if um, you're going to write about it, you want to be in it.
2: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Right. <laughs> so how, how do you, as a writer, develop, because this is not just a, an ensemble piece that's a contained piece. You have mul- a multiplicity of locations. Mm-hmm. You've got social strata right? that you're crossing over. It's not just one class of people. It's You're intermixing everything, all of which then Kevin has to deal with as a director and come up with the whole visual palette and the visual tonal bandwidth right. to go with this. But how do you as a writer develop this, or did he get any input? Or
2: Kevin is my constant reader, so I'll write five pages, give it to him, and he'll tell me what's wrong with it. And, um, but I had written, I had already written so many drafts of the script mm-hmm. and, um, then I had to trash all of it, um, <laughs> which was painful, but necessary. Um, it was just, I'd say the first like seven drafts were just me getting to know the characters mm-hmm. <laughs> and then had to scrap it all and then start again. And, um, Kevin told me, forget about producibility, just write, write the movie that you want to see. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do a producibility pass. And we never did that.
1: <laughs> you know, that's the pass where you, like, combine characters, combine locations. You delete the big mob scene. You, you just figure out, like, okay, that's the movie that you wrote. And now here's the movie that we can afford to make. Mm-hmm. And uh, we never got around to doing that pass. We just sort of went for it.
0: <laughs> mm, and I got to say, went for it, you guys did. Because, I mean, your cinematography, and I know we've talked about it before, Gus's cinematography is just beautiful. But then your production design, the way you capture the period, and then your music. So all of these elements then bring Jenna's incredible script to life. But I'm curious, you know, your div- and even the girls in the brothel, each one has a very distinct personality. Especially our virgin prostitute, Orphan Mary. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, you heard that right, people. Virgin prostitute, Orphan Mary. yes. It's, okay, how how did you come up with that? Or was that Kevin's idea?
2: <laughs> um in the earlier versions of the script, she does she loses her virginity and I just it just seemed more interesting um to have her as I was developing the character and um nearly everybody back then in New Orleans was a devout Catholic. So to have her give her that I guess, that backbone, mm-hmm. and that being an important part of her. Um, so I just thought it was a more interesting character to have that be um, be vital to her. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary's actually quite smart about what's happening around.
2: Absolutely. And that was a very difficult role to cast. Not that we had easy roles to cast, but she she changes so much. -hmm. In the course of the movie, she turns—you know—she turns into a pretty brazen woman. Mm -hmm.
1: And she's one of the characters that's based on historical fact, right? So there was a real life prostitute. Was what fifteen years old? Right. Yeah, it was tough times back then. Yeah. Um. So the real life prostitute was fifteen years old. So that's about what we were targeting for the actress. And it's just really hard to find an actress in that age range that can
2: play that 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 range.
1: Right. Yeah. They can have that range. Um. Uh, So, yeah, go Megan Graves. Yeah, Yeah.
0: (laughs) absolutely. She's she's amazing. Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, and that's something that's very key with the characters that you've written, with the characters you've created, is your casting. Because they really, they fully form and and embody Mm -hmm. the characters. And I don't know how you as a director lucked out to have, you know, such perfectly cast people That can't, because not everybody can actually do period piece, as you as an actress know well, Jenna, you know, they can't do it. But here, everybody really embodied the various social strata Mm -hmm. um, and the time and what the expectations of each type of person in that time.
2: Right.
1: We just did, I mean, honestly, we did a ton of casting, and for some of the roles, like Jacques the Alchemist, mm-hmm. um, we, we knew Don previously, and he's actually the only person we read for it. Um, one, of the, one of the cool little secrets of, of the movie, I think, is that we, we produced it in the Washington, D.C. area mostly, and then a few days in New Orleans, but we cast it out of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and D.C. has just a, just a thriving theater scene, and a lot of people are hungry to do more screen acting. Um, mm-hmm. That are doing a lot of a lot of theater, and not everybody can make that switch. Not not every actor that is great on stage is going to be great on the screen. Right. But maybe like half of them will be. You know. So it's mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great talent pool to, to tap into. Um, but some of the roles, like like Mary, the how did you portray her, the Virgin prostitute orphan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mary the Virgin <laughs> prostitute orphan, um, and our Marie Laveau were were really hard to cast, and I mean we we saw probably fifty people. After, you know, after going through headshots and or tapes, then we actually probably brought in about 50 people to read for Marie Laveau before we found our our Marie Laveau, Dionne Audain.
0: And Dionne is just, she is utterly astounding. There is not a minute you do not believe that she is a voodoo priestess. She is amazing. And to see her go toe to toe with Dan Mm -hmm. as Jacques Saint-Germain the two of them together have an incredible chemistry and you can feel them bouncing off of each other. Right. And it really plays so well on screen and just draws you deeper into this already fascinating story.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. I think the hardest part of finding our Marie was she, she had to play someone very prideful and strong, very guarded, but have these moments of vulnerability So to find an actress that could bring both sides, believably Mm -hmm. and well, um, it was tough. But our casting director, um, Joy Haynes, knew Dion. And as soon as she read the script, she was like, you have to read Dion. Like, this is Dion. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Give that woman a raise. (laughs) (laughs) But now, how do you, once you have the script and these rich characters on the page and now you have them cast... How do you as a director then approach this, Kevin? Because the wealth of ambient nature, your visual effects, you know, I am absolutely enamored with these incredible VFX montages you have in the film of alchemy and voodoo of... See? Chaucer Chaucer (laughs) likes that too. You know, he likes that too. Uh, So I'm curious how you then go about developing the whole look and feel bearing in mind, you then have to edit this together. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think (laughs) indie filmmaking is just like sort of, there's a lot of seat of your pants stuff. Right. And I, I feel like it's almost like meditation where the world is throwing. And and I'm sure, I'm sure making a multimillion dollar movie is the same thing, but making a more modest, modestly budgeted movie, um, like this, (laughs) um, I feel like. Well, wait,
0: wait, wait a minute. You mean you don't know what it's like to make a multi-million dollar movie?
1: No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to give me the next Star Wars. But until oh, then, Oh, okay. Until then, I don't know. Okay.
0: Yeah. Or, or directing the new Star Wars TV series spinoffs that are going to happen Please. from the yeah. Game of Thrones writers.
1: I mean, I feel like Disney wants to make so much money off Star Wars that like everybody's going to get to direct. A Star- You're going to get to direct a Star Wars. I'm going to get to direct a Star Wars. I want to Chaucer produce her- one. Yeah. <laughs> I want to
0: produce one. You can direct. Okay,
1: there you go. Um... So so on a more modest movie I feel like it's it's almost like a you know, you just really need to find the spots where you where you can make it work and can make it work well, and one was locations. So we spent a lot of time location scouting and the Washington DC area for our interiors was pretty useful for that in that we found a lot of sort of ready to go places more or less that that were that looked like a little a little time capsule. Um and I think just having this sort of like this con- – constantly having this mantra of like is this the best way to be spending our time to have things end up well on the screen mm. because it's so easy to go down a rabbit hole of like this visual effect or this thing that you that you wanted to happen. And um, indie film directing is uh, just sort of like constantly uh, – Killing your babies, your virtual babies, not your real babies. Not your real ones. (laughs) I love my real babies.
0: Cover your ears, Chaucer. Cover your ears.
1: (laughs) It's constantly murdering your your, uh, virtual director babies, like, every day, right? Every day it would just be like we're filming and I just, like, rip three pages out of the script. It's like, okay, we're not going to get to those because they're not the most important bit and they may or may not have made the edit and there was something about them that we loved, but... I need to make a command decision and this other stuff is more important and we need to focus on it. So I'm I'm editing the movie as we go. I'm cutting bits out. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I thought like, you know, as a director, you carefully storyboard some sequences and you come up with all this cool stuff that you think is going to be what everybody pats you on the back for later. All that just gets lost on the way because you have to just sort of keep that meditative idea of like, okay, what is this end experience going to be like for an audience what is the most important thing for us to be spending our time on right now to tell this story and to make it impactful? Um, and I don't know. It's it's tough. <laughs> I don't know. I forget what the question was. Well, you I know, definitely didn't answer it.
0: Well, you know, you have you have so many subplots going on. There is nothing superfluous here. You, right. do, you don't have anything extraneous in terms of characters or story. It's very tight. Everything can – you do an excellent job – of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and connecting everything, so that when we get to the end of the film, granted, and I said this before, I'm going to say it again, you have, those of you, when you watch the film, you have to see it all the way to the very, very, very end, after the credits, because there is a lovely little Easter egg there, and God, I want to see a sequel, or, 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 or a twofer, or a, or a two-filmer, whatever <laughs> Jenna wants to call it, um, because... Tying everything up here, but you're set up for the, right. oh, my God, what's coming next?
1: And I'm Jenna just deserves credit for that because it's just a lot of writing work. And I think, you know, people who haven't seen the movie yet – and, again, you can watch this tomorrow. Yes. Tomorrow. Anybody can watch it. Um, it's out. Um, but it, it kind of has almost like a Paul Thomas Anderson vibe where it's one of those, you know, like Magnolia or like um, – <clears throat> Excuse me. One of one of his. You movies. have
0: a bottle of water there, you know.
1: True that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of those. One of those movies that just is that you know huge ensemble cast, and you don't quite know how everybody's going to tie together, and then you know we kind of bring everybody together at the end, and I think that's the fun of it. Um, you know, since this since this movie, Jenna actually wrote a pilot script for this as like an hour long episodic kind of like <gasps> cable show. Ooh. Yeah. Um,
3: And it it works
1: really well like that because it does let you, it it lets you sort of expand out of of all these characters
0: and stuff. Oh, yes. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I would love to see that.
2: Our um, composer actually encouraged me to write that script. Um, And it was a finalist at Cinequest. And.
1: The script was a finalist at Cinéquest, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in their script competition, so it's a it's a good script, and I think it is actually you know it is something where you know you could see this assortment of characters and this thing as this ensemble piece, kind of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie in a in a movie form, or it does kind of lend itself a lot to you know if we wanted to expand it into a sort of a cable drama universe, I think is where mm-hmm. it would sit. You know, one of these ten episode season hour long yeah. cable dramas where uh, you know we get to. We get to dive down all these different little rabbit holes and nooks and crannies that New Orleans has to offer.
0: Ooh, and just think of all the research and history that you can delve into, Jenna. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, hey, I got I got to give a shout out to John Piscatello, your your composer, since it was his idea for you to to draft a, a script absolutely for, for an hour long. Yeah, and I got to say, John's music in dinner with the alchemist is amazing it's ominous it fits the period i mean, it's it's just it's perfect
1: he's he's great uh i just hope he doesn't get too big to like work with us in the near future because he's been he's been knocking him out of the park and doing a lot of uh great soundtracks and uh you know i think just just finding a movie like this and again it's kind of like that balancing act of like being indie but still wanting to be epic you know I, I feel like too too often indie movies sorry all the indie filmmakers who are listening I feel like too often indie movies like take that advice of like well you want to you want to sort of do what you can what you can tackle well which is like you know put a few people in one house you know a few characters one location mm-hmm. modern day keep it simple um and like yeah that's that's much more manageable and by all means like I would be a more sane person right now if we had tried to do that but I think I think tackling a big world is is uh is more fun- you know it, it helps it stand out for one thing and it's just it's more fun that's why we go to the movies you know I go to the movies to be to be taken away and have an experience and have a world um and i think the soundtrack is sort of like the same thing where you know obviously we can't hire out the london Philharmonic to to do the score here but then so what is the what is the balancing act there where you know we we do get something that that feels fresh and doesn't sound like every other
0: mm-hmm.
1: indie soundtrack that kind of just Feels like somebody sat down at their keyboard and, mm-hmm. and played a chord. Well, John,
0: John used live <laughs> mu- musicians for this, did he not? Absolutely, he used yeah. live
1: musicians, and a lot of it is set- centered around a harp, right? So you have that feeling of the harp through the whole movie, kind of texturing the soundtrack. And uh, I mean, it's just it's lovely. And then like, keeping to like the smaller ensemble like that, and just a few musicians instead of having to hire out a huge orchestra, mm-hmm. allows us to have live musicians, which I think is important to the kind of texture of the period piece rather than a bunch of keyboard music, um, you know, without uh, breaking the bank or, you know, just not being able to do it Mm -hmm. outright.
0: And you're right, it is, the the music is very much in keeping, he's happy, Chaucer's happy, the music is very much in keeping with the period because there wasn't electronic keyboards and things like that. There wasn't. you really get the feel of the bow on the strings and the squeak that comes with it sometimes.
1: Yeah, and our New Orleans is also a, sort of a pre-jazz New Orleans, right? You hear a little bit of uh, Scott Joplin playing in a piano bar at one point. Um, but it's not kind of what people associate with like the music of New Orleans today because yeah. we were in an era before that. So... Um, so it was a curious little challenge to for the soundtrack to like you know we want to make it feel like a mystical this mystical world but at the same time you know you say New Orleans to people the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth is jazz you know nowadays
0: First thing that comes up to my mind with New Orleans is voodoo
1: Okay well you're our, you're the target audience for our movie then <laughs> You should really watch this movie I think you'll like it you should check you it out. Think? It's on demand tomorrow. You well,
0: <laughs> you know, you've you got to thank, you have to thank your original publicist, Clayton Ferris, because Clayton got this to me True. two years ago. True. You know, so it, it's, it's all him. Yeah. He yeah. must have known, sensed, that I would go for the voodoo. Yeah, right? yeah. And that is one of the fascinating things with this film, is you see the whole idea, the science of alchemy, and then the mysticism of voodoo, and you see them play out against each other. And it's just so beautifully done, as I mentioned, in those montages that you and Gus put together. It's gorgeous to watch this. And it's very hypnotic, very mesmerizing.
1: Not to keep talking about doing movies uh, on the cheap, because I don't think people... Like, hopefully someone watches this and they don't think to themselves, Boy, Kevin really scrimped and saved here. But that, that's kind of the point. But, like, those those sequences were something where we, we were struggling because... Um, uh, basically you know set wise originally in the script i was thinking of it as like these much bigger like alchemy lab sequences right and it would be kind of almost like uh i i don't know a willy wonka's playhouse or edison in his <laughs> lab and like a, you know all this all these things and uh instead we we went for something that i could just work on day after day after day in our apartment and that was like this hyper macro stuff of the alchemy mm-hmm. and the chemical reactions happening right and it's like taking something where where i have all the freedom to just go ahead and, and work on this as i please in our apartment but we can th- therefore we can really take the time to make it look cool and just mm-hmm. like be mesmerized I mean, we spent days and days and days just like with the super macro lens on mm-hmm. you know dropping powders into flames and doing i know,
0: you know. and what it does with color when mm-hmm. you when you you know drop that stuff in because you never know what's going to happen when you drop certain powders into a flame or things like that, and it's just so rich. It's very lush, very lush yeah. looking. Yeah. And the entire the entire visual palette has a lushness to it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think like for that, for example, for that, like the macro, I, I think you see other uh, directors who uh, are like famous and stuff now. You know, who who do the same sort of tricks that they that they sort of learned when they were doing their little indie thing, and now they you know, that was how they made it interesting in the indie thing, and now that's how they're doing it for uh, for a bigger movie. Uh, sorry, I'm forgetting his name, the director, Shaun of the Dead. Um, drawing Edward total- Wright. Edgar, uh, Ed- Edgar Wright. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah think, okay. Yeah. R- where he does all those, like, sort of fast-cut transition things, mm-hmm. and you can kind of see how, like, oh, that was probably a way in, like, an indie of making this, like, really impactful without, you know, having to sort of overcomplicate things essentially but then you see that's like his visual language now and that's still what he does right. or like uh Christopher Nolan with Memento and his his uh his time shifting and putting things you know like like that's kind of his his deal um is playing around with the the narrative order of things to to Mm -hmm. you know say okay here's the linear thing and and how can we make this the most interesting thing possible by by rearranging things you still see him doing that in dunkirk you know Mm -hmm. where it's all it's all cattywampus and everything is out of order because that's like that's his that's the thing that he's developed because that's just sort of how he thinks about it and it's not you know putting everything out of order doesn't make the movie any harder to produce right but it it Gives it this Nolan texture, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Well, what was the most challenging thing for each of you in bringing Dinner with the Alchemist to life? I know Jenna's Jenna's going to take. Are you taking Chaucer out for a minute? Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye, Chaucer. Bye, Chaucer. He did did pretty
1: well, but he was getting (laughs) vocal there. Um, He
0: he did a half an hour.
1: I think. I think. I I can probably answer for both of us. uh, That is. Um, the most challenging thing is just sort of like not knowing, honestly, not knowing if you're going to get to this point, like this is a big relief. Like the movie comes out tomorrow, people can watch it. And I think you, you ask a lot of people, there were so many favors called in. There's so much Mm -hmm. asked of people to try to help us create this vision. And you don't know if it's going to, you don't know if you're going to be able to make it to the finish line. You know, we don't have big financiers behind us. Our new Orleans shoot was insanely scheduled uh we're filming on the streets of the french quarter without being able to block them off so we're just being heckled by drunks (laughs) the whole time it was ridiculous Uh, don the lead uh the alchemist said that he uh that that was the hardest night of filming of his life was when we filmed the opening scene of the movie and it was just a just a dialogue between him and mary and um and we got heckled forever hours it it took it felt like it took an hour to get through each line because people just so many drunks were like heckling us um and we didn't have a we didn't have a rain schedule we didn't have you know any way of there, there was no plan b like if it if, if we had gone down there and it had rained that was like half our budget to um to travel down there it was about half our budget and if it had just decided to dump rain on us that day we wouldn't have a movie oh my god right so I don't know the 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 spirits of New Orleans smiled on us ish ish the drunks of New Orleans did not smile on us but I, they're not from there they did other they're things mostly- but
0: we're not going to talk about those oh my um, god yeah well you know it's, it's funny last week Ethan Warren was was guest on the show and he's got his new film out west of her and he did a road trip and All over the over 3,700 miles driving all over the United States shooting very, very Terrence Malick kind of feel to it. Okay, but there again, it's you show up somewhere and it's well, it looked like it might rain, maybe it wasn't, maybe it would. Can we get this shot? Do we have to change this shot? How are we going to luck out? Uh, Rachel Morrison, Academy Award nominee for cinematography on Mudbound. I talked at length with Rachel about shooting Mudbound in the Deep South. And she said, oh, it rained every day at some point during every day. And you can't do it. She wanted to do a 360 with cameras. She couldn't do 360s with cameras. She had to try and, you know, wheel things on apple carts through the mud to just to try and get shots. And it was, okay, maybe this is going to work. Maybe this isn't going to work. So everybody goes through that. Well, man, if it works, hey, we lucked out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, My plan was, which just seems stupid in hindsight, was like, well, if it <laughs> rains, if it rains, we'll just tuck under some of the, you know, we'll just find spots like more like tucked under because everything in New Orleans has those Spanish balconies. So a lot of the sidewalks are essentially covered. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if it rains, I mean, we basically have cover. It was, it was a terrible idea. It wouldn't have worked. Oh, my God. Although it would have cut down on the drunks. So maybe it would have been like.
0: Uh, you know they could have been hiding under there too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So, I that may that may not have worked.
1: Right. People who go travel to New Orleans to get hammered for a few days aren't going to be stopped by some rain.
0: No, they're right. not. They're yeah. not. So, are you going to stick around?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Oh,
0: all right. Because Pam is about ready to hook up our next two guests. And oh, it's so bad Jenna's not in here. That even has a little a little booklet inside of it. So, bring them on live, Pam. She's playing. And welcome. I think we have Ron King and Derek Greer on the line. Are you there, guys?
4: Indeed. Hi, Beth. Yeah, this is Derek.
0: Hi, Derek. You there, Ron?
4: It's Ron. I'm here as well.
0: I am so excited. Here in studio with me is director Kevin Good, who's just been talking about his film, which is available tomorrow, Dinner with the Alchemist.
5: Hey, Derek and Ron. Hey. How are you, Kevin? Hi.
0: And he's, he is, is sitting here now st- studying the the, DV, the DVD box, and this is, I have to say, one of my favorite documentaries that I have seen in a long time. The history you bring to life, the personal stories, the sentimentality of these men, absolutely astounding. And then you look at all these archival photos and footage and your recreations. And I got to say, the Sopwith Camel, and you got it from Peter Jackson to film? Come on. (laughs) Come on. This is... (laughs) Well,
5: thank you, Debbie.
0: I love this documentary, and I cannot encourage people enough to see it. It is a piece of American history that is so important uh, that impacts us to this very day because of these naval aviators. You know, guys, This I know this has been a long journey for you to get to this point with this film. You know, how, Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> how did this tell the listeners basically what this is the story of and how this came to you and what made you decide this had to be a movie.
4: Well, Ron, why don't you take Well, it? I'll take the introductory story. Um, for me, this was a situation where I was, I was uh, at a point in my life where I wanted to make a, uh, some sort of a feature-length film, but I wasn't quite sure what that film would be and one day i happened to be in a bookstore and and saw a stack of books that for some reason attracted my attention wasn't sure why scrolled over to it and there was a photograph on the cover of a new release that uh that included my grandfather and i recognized him right away even though it wasn't a, a photo i had ever seen before when he was about 20 some years old and uh and the title of the book was the millionaire's unit and I realized right away what the story was about, because it was uh, known in my family that, that my grandfather had been a naval aviator back in World War I, but I certainly didn't know the details. And um, in reading Mark Wartman's book, his wonderful book, uh, I discovered uh, much of what happened with my grandfather in World War I, and was astonished. <laughs> um I subsequently got in touch with Mark, and he invited me to sit on a panel in New York City at the Yale Club uh, with some of the other descendants of the Yale Unit members. This group from Yale, this young group of men who put together this privately funded air militia, <laughs> and uh, and and Mark, uh, I had asked Mark, is anybody making a documentary about this this story? And Mark said, not to his knowledge. And uh, I told him the reason I was interested is because I'd love to see it. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, maybe you you might want to think about doing a documentary. (laughs) And so uh, that quarter synced up with my desire to make a film. And uh, that's when I got in touch with Derek about uh, helping to, to make the film, because Derek and I were old friends from college days, and... Eric had subsequently become a uh, a producer and a filmmaker and a documentarian on his own. Is That was his career. So he was the perfect person to get in touch with, and and then the two of us kind of got together and tried to figure out how we were going to make it into a documentary. But that's that's how it got started.
0: I mean, I, I love that, Ron. You just said, I want to make a film. I don't know what I make. I want to make a film, and then you decided this is the film to start with. This is your feature. And it makes me think of Kevin sitting here. It's like... I want to make a feature. I want to direct a feature. You know, problems be damned. I'm going to do it. And you had Derek to come on board to help you with all those problems be damned, and bring <laughs> and bring this to life. You know, how did you go? The research for this film had to be intense. And with everything that you have uncovered and unearthed to bring to light these personal stories, these diaries, um, you know, photographs that nobody's ever seen before that have been families been holding dear and close to them, you know, for decades. You know, how do you go about amassing all of this and structuring it into a coherent storyline,
5: well, the, yeah, the, the research really I was intense. the research really was intense, and um, i uh, i 've always loved American history and i 've done a lot of research, uh, mostly in 19th century America. I really didn 't know anything about World War one um, but we we had mark 's book that was a general outline, but then we got into the letters, and because Truby Davison was left behind. Um, Uh, When everyone else went to Europe for the war, they all wrote letters to him, and his papers are in Yale at the Sterling Library. And so we started picking out the characters that we liked, and we saw the big moments, you know, when they first learn to fly, when when they get their Navy wings, when they ship overseas, when they're assigned to their various assignments, and start putting the story that way, but uh, together that way. But it was very important— to put that in the context of the development of naval aviation and how naval aviation fit into World War I and what part America played in World War I. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I spent several weeks in New Haven, uh, often staying at Mark Wortman, the author of the book, uh, at his house. And actually Mark is coming out to California this weekend that we get to return the favor because he's coming out here for our L.A. premiere on Saturday night. Um, uh, also, the photographs. Uh, you know, and, and I saw a pretty standard traditional documentary of photos, but very quickly, Ron and I realized we really need to tell the, the story of the planes.
3: Mm-hmm. We had
5: seen some World War I aviation films we didn't really like. And then, <laughs> luckily, we found this collector in Central California, and we got to see his collection of planes all with original engines. 100-year-old original engines and hear them wow. and see them in action. And uh, that was really bracing. And we thought, well, we really have to show the audience what it took to fly these planes. Uh, so they, uh, they understood the danger and also the drama. Uh, but then we really pinpointed the Sopwith camel, because one of our characters, Dave Ingalls, he was the Navy's only ace in World War I. And he won his a by flying a camel. And then Kenny McLeish, probably our most romantic character, uh, lost his life in a sop camel. Mm-hmm. And there were only three in the world. Uh, there was one mothballed in England that'd be very expensive. Our friend in California didn't want to get up in the air with a helicopter and all of that rigmarole. And then Sir Peter Jackson, of the, the director of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies, um, is a huge World War One aficionado. He has dozens of planes, and he had a camel with an original engine. And we called them up and said, this is what we want to do. This is how much money we have. And they said, come on out. Okay. And we did.
0: Wait a minute. You, you had money to make this movie? <laughs>
5: well, that's why it took seven years <laughs> <laughs> to make. I, you know, a lot of that was, was fundraising. And, and you asked, you know, how do you stick with a, with a subject or a movie that long? And part of it was that the movie just kept getting bigger. You know, mm-hmm. Ron and I would dream about, wouldn't it be great if we could do this or if we could do that? And then in the end, I have to say, all of our dreams came true. We, we got to make the movie as big as we wanted it to be.
0: Wow.
1: So you guys actually filmed uh, real planes in the air for this, is what I'm understanding. Like
5: We did. The- we, uh, <laughs> we rented a helicopter and uh, a gentleman who had... Developed this 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 brand new, very fancy camera mount uh, for the front of the helicopter, uh, came and delivered it up to to Peter Jackson's aerodrome, and uh, we could only afford it for three hours. So we had very detailed shot lists.
1: Okay, and was that to uh, recreate uh, from the
5: helicopter?
1: Was that to recreate moments in the film, or was that or like? How do, you, how, do you come, how do you come about a shot list like that when you think, oh, boy, we have three hours for this uh, shaky old 100-year-old plane, and we have to get it right?
5: Well, looking over the story, we wanted to—they're learning to fly, and, th- and then they fly more sophisticated planes. And so we wanted to build, build in that drama, and each time you got through a flying sequence, have it be better than the one before. And then we picked out the most important battles that they were involved in. And so we had, I I don't know, maybe five different battles. And how are we seeing it? From what angle are we looking at the plane? And so we had a Cessna that we could take a door off of either side. And so when are we behind and to the right of the plane? When are we to the left of the plane? When are we looking back at the plane? When are we looking forward, and which can handle these best? And we only had the helicopter for three hours. We had the Cessna for three days. And so so in breaking down all those shot lists, uh, you know, it wasn't a chronological sequence. It was divided all over the place. And we just had to hope that, that through getting all of those shots, they were then going to add up to the sequences we needed. Well, and I did.
0: I mean, the sequences are outstanding. And then what you also did that I love is with a lot of these archival photos, you then applied VFX animation overlays to actually enhance the realism of actual bombings and actual battles. Once you really get into Bob Lovett's story, where he went on to, he then started piloting uh, land bombers to hit the German subs in Belgium <laughs> uh, instead of just doing surveillance with seaplanes. And. You really enhance that, and it is so realistic um, that ju- it blew my mind watching it, and you have the map overlays so we can see exactly where it is, and the fact you bring Dunkirk into it, how timely is this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I mean, that's something that everybody can tap into Dunkirk, oh, and it's not the Academy Award film, it's a real place um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, through it all, you also intersperse these great stories and interviews with relatives. Ron, you are a relative. Um, you're the grandson of John Voris, who flew who was part of the unit. He then went on to fly recon in World War II. 10 term congressman from Ohio. This is, you know, you got some great lineage going on here.
4: Yes, well, uh, two of our other producers were also, uh, grandsons and of the Yale unit members. Uh, Harry Davison is the grandson of Truby Davison
3: mm-hmm. and
4: Mike Davison happened to be the grandson of both Truby Davison and Dave Ingalls. So we had a lot of family who eventually got involved in making the film. And, uh, so I would say that uh, you know, a large part of the effort is sort of a a legacy and a um, you know a a, a, a uh, dedication to the original effort that these guys made back in 1916.
0: <laughs> you know, and I have to say, you know, it's the history that you also bring in the history of the Naval Air Air Reserve. Um, you know, Truby Davison, of course, he was one of the key components of putting the initial group together. He unfortunately didn't get his wings because crashed into the water and ended up with a back injury. Um, but he then went He went on to become the de- deputy secretary of war uh, for the air uh, in World War II um, and was heavily involved. Another one of the guys, Bob Lovett, uh, you know, Lovett went on, what was he? He was uh, secretary of defense during Korea. Acting secretary mm-hmm. acting secretary of State during World War two I mean these guys this they weren't one-shot deals and we see this but then I couldn't help the whole time as we're seeing their stories unfold going back to the boys when they all started out with forming this Yale unit they had to get permission from their parents to fly <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, yeah it's 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 a remarkable story. You, you know the characters and the story arc are all there for a great big drama. I, uh,
0: yeah, and the letters—the letters that were being written back from when they were all in Paris and they were—they were meeting ladies of the evening for the first time. <laughs> Seems to be a theme today. <laughs> I, well,
5: Robert Lovett love letters to um, his girlfriend and then fiance uh, are, are just remarkable and and really to cap uh, his character's experience in the film, we needed to do the bombing sequence, and it took place at night. And so how do you do a night bombing sequence from a 100 years ago? Mm-hmm. And through a combination of... Uh, Ron used models and photographs, and we found a great team of, um, of uh, computer-generated imaging animators in New Hampshire. And we put together... You know, shot by shot, a sequence that I feel like kind of works that gives you some sort of idea of what it might be like to go bombing over Belgium at night. And
0: uh, yeah, I'm, and there I'm, you have it. I'm curious how you approach the editing, because I know Kevin is an editor, and it, that's primarily, I think that's been one of your big vocations has been editing, correct, Kevin?
1: That's kind of what pays the bills so that <laughs> I can spend all that money on indie movies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, good for you. <laughs> so
0: how do you approach editing something with this kind of history with the amount of footage that you are accumulating through interviews, through the archival materials and through the recreations? It was editing a work in progress? Was it did you wait till the end and then say, "Okay, let's call through it all." You know, how how was that process?
5: No, it was yeah, very I'll much
4: a work in progress. Uh, yeah, I was going
5: to somebody else real
4: speaking? quick that in the, in the beginning um, we, we I mean we started working right away, but I'll let it, I'll let Derek talk about it. Um,
5: uh,
4: we had three different editors, not
5: by chance, but uh, by the amount of time it took to make the film. And the first one prepped all of our photographs, and we just started adding the story together using still photographs. And then when we would get some footage with one of our very first grant for $25,000, we went to the old Rhinebeck Aerodrome in New York and filmed some planes. And then Ron and I would put together maybe a 20-minute sequence, and we would go to the East Coast for more production, and we would show 20 minutes at the Dolby Screening House and invite people that we would hope give us Money and we would get a check for a hundred dollars or fifty dollars, uh, you know, and go off with our tail between our legs and keep our nose to the grindstone. Um, then we got another uh, editor in who's a pilot and um, had a very good uh, feeling for motion and movement. And uh, then finally, we got a finishing editor in who's also a very good storyteller. But it sort of went section by section and many hours of sitting down reviewing the edits to make sure we were using the right and best photograph in each instance and making, um, making the sequences move as much as possible. Um, you know, when you're working with ephemera and black-and-white photographs, uh, you don't want people to go to sleep. So um, <laughs> hopefully we succeeded there.
0: Well, I definitely think you did, and I love the way you chapterized this. You've got, you know, your bug in the bonnet, the um, the the real stuff. Eye for an eye, which is really interesting, and then how very young we were. That that caps everything up as we see what happened to you. Fill us in and tell us what happened to these great guys. Um, was it difficult to find those those ch- thematic chapters?
5: It sort of happened naturally. Um you know, we, and the sequences, except for the last epilogue, the sequences are generally about the same length. The difficulty was getting planes in early enough. It took us 22 minutes before a plane went up in the air, and we kept thinking, can we cut this down? But uh, there was a lot of information we just felt like people needed to know to really be invested in the characters. But, um but, you know, it was rather natural. They get together and train and get their wings. Then they go to Europe and meet some tragedy. Then they really dig in and finish out the war. And then the epilogue of, of what they made of their lives.
0: So now I know, Derek, you got to travel. You got to go overseas to Belgium. Ron, did you get to go anywhere other than within the <laughs> continental United States?
4: Well, I mean my My journey as a filmmaker in terms of actually shooting was really quite fun. Um, I started out in the United States, as you say, um, and I was doing some shoots completely solo, where I was you know doing the interview, I was shooting, I was recording the sound, which I honestly do not recommend for filmmakers.
3: <laughs>
4: I mean, sometimes you have to do that, but uh, uh, if you can have at least one other person, that really helps. And Derek, of course, came on board, and, and then he and I did some as a two-person crew, and then our crew sort of expanded over time. So by the time we got to um, New Zealand, which I did get to go to New Zealand, so that was very cool <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was the ground cameraman with, uh, with a, one of Peter Jackson's red cameras out of his collection of cameras as well as, uh, oh. as well as airplanes. And, uh, so I did a lot of those shots from the ground that we used. Uh, Derek also shot from the ground. And then we had, um, we actually worked with one of Peter's, uh, cameramen who, who shot from the air. Uh, plus the, the guy who developed the shot over camera, John Coyle, also did some shooting from the air. Uh, so, you know, by the time we, we, moved on five years down the road from the beginning when it was just one person we had a crew of several camera people and and so i got a chance to travel to all those places and and meet all those people and work with them which was fantastic
0: so obviously by that point you were getting checks that were bigger than fifty dollars
5: indeed <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I, I should add that ron got to Ron got to shoot from a Piper Cub and from a speedboat, shooting across Lake Cuca, as did we were trying to catch up to the the only flying F boat in the world.
1: Did you guys uh, have you guys been up in the period planes yourselves, or did you only film them from afar?
5: Well, they're only single seater, so uh, yeah, there was no room. But uh, along with that, I, I got to fly and a couple tiger moths and a few steermen. And so I've been in some 20s and 30s uh, planes, which is is pretty fun. They're very simple.
0: Yeah. Now, very... But... um... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Debbie. No, go ahead.
5: I I was just going (laughs) to briefly talk about Europe, but I thought it was... You know, we we needed to get some stuff done in Europe. And my sister lived in London. And um, Ron pointed me to a camera that I should buy. And I convinced our board to, to let me go that I could do it cheaply. And so I, um, I filmed in Belgium and France and in England. And, um, most notably, I took a ferry ride from Hull, England into Zeebrugge Harbor. And that's the big harbor where the Germans had taken over. And that was their sub base
3: mm-hmm. from
5: which they sailed all of their submarines and the place that Robert Lovett Wanted to bomb, uh, so that he didn't have to search for them all over the, the North Sea and the English Channel. And um, I got some really lovely shots uh, at night, at sunset, at dawn, and then moving into Zabriga Harbor. Harbor was was really fun. So and, and Dunkirk as well, as you say. Yeah.
0: So, so in other words, I know Kevin's sitting here. I see the wheels of his of his head turning here. It's like. All right, they got somebody to let me buy a camera um, <laughs> so
1: and you guys might want to totally dodge this question and not answer it but was was safety ever a thing like you're taking some some old uh right like it's uh this is not this is not a simple some of these are not simple shoots you're taking uh antiques into the air literally um were there were there ever uh uh stomach churning moments of uh engines dying or anything like that?
5: I don't think I really knew what we were getting into uh, when we started, and uh, it was tough getting exp- experimental aircraft insurance, but my wife is an insurance broker, <laughs> and so her company did help us out. But uh, I have to say, since we did that, two of the pilots that we filmed with that both died in airplane oh. crashes.
0: Oh, my God. Oh,
5: no. One in a World War II plane. And another in a in a World War One plane. Unru- uh, after and, um, after
1: shooting this, obviously, this was not not.
5: Yeah, yeah, we we sort of hit a, a golden period there uh, in making the film. We we filmed this F boat on Lake Yukon, where the Glenn Hammond Curtis Museum is, and that's never going to fly again. It flew one weekend, and we filmed it. Oh, and wow. then uh, a friend of ours had a collection, and he passed away. And uh, Peter Jackson um, is not as active with his uh, with his uh, his vintage aviator anymore, and so we're actually making another World War One aviation film and uh, having a hard time finding all the planes we need.
0: Have you hit up Harrison Ford?
1: Don't use him as a <laughs> as yet? a stunt pilot. <laughs> 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 he
4: likes to land on golf courses apparently. Golf golf uh, courses and
1: taxiways, <laughs> from what I understand. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. doesn't he have some, Uh, uh, he has some vintage stuff. I don't know how old it is, but I know he's got some vintage planes. Perhaps there might be something there that can assist you.
5: Well, it's got to be vintage in French. Uh,
0: I
4: I don't think he has World War I, but I know he has World War II. Two, yeah. Um, But I wanted, wanted to mention quickly two other uh, harrowing moments. One was we were filming up at Lake Yuca, as Derek said, and it was the year prior to the F-boat. And uh, there was an old, very, very old uh, model A-1 triad that the, the museum was testing out. And, they, and there was a pilot who um, had never flown this type of aircraft before, and, and he wanted to try it out we happened to be there when they were doing that so we were filming them and this pilot unfortunately just got off the water and then and then actually crashed into the water and the propeller broke and flew across the <laughs> lake so that was a little scary luckily the pilot was not hurt and the aircraft um, they they brought it back to the museum so that was you know that wasn't part of our movie uh that we, I mean, we weren't sure if we we're going to use that in the film, but uh, we did film that. And then in that same shoot, as Derek mentioned, they put me in a Piper Cub and took the door off, and then we flew over the lake trying to film this airplane. Uh, and I was never—I'd never done that before—and I was hand-hand <laughs> holding the, the camera. And then I recall that the uh, airplane that I was in dipped deeply toward the lake, dropping one wing down. And I was kind of hanging out the door. I was strapped in, but I was like, this is interesting. Oh, no. so, uh, you know, nothing happened, but uh, you were talking about hair raising moments. And that was one for me kind of hanging out the door of an airplane filming.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, in hindsight, now that everything worked out, it's pretty cool. You know, in my movie, I was just worried we were going to yeah, get rained exactly. on. So you guys are like, you know, next leveling it. It's
4: great. <laughs>
0: Now, now I, Ron, you're in my neck of the woods locally in L.A., aren't you?
4: Yep. Yep. I'm in Culver
0: City. Yeah. You're, yeah, I thought, I thought that you were in my neck of the woods. Yes, right there. I, I
5: live in Van Nuys.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe all this fun stuff is happening in my backyard. And, you know, and I, I didn't know about it until I found out about the millionaires unit. And everybody can now... Yes, go ahead.
5: I I was just going to say we're showing the movie this Saturday at the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica. And um, it starts at 7 o'clock, and we'd love to see anybody there who wants to come.
0: And in the meantime, everybody can go to millionairesunit.org, and they can buy the DVD and Blu-ray right now. And tomorrow, or the 15th, which is... What, Thursday? It's available on VOD, yes?
5: Indeed, indeed. Yes, and if you're, you're really to, uh, interested in, in World War I aviation, uh, there are four supplemental films on the DVD Blu-ray, and one of them is just 15 minutes, and it's on flying the Sopwith Camel, just about how difficult and interesting that plane is to fly.
0: Oh, uh. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are all out of time today. I could talk to you about this documentary further because I am just, I am so in love with it. I was fascinated by it. I even watched, you know, some of the features, including the Sopwith Camel, because I just think the Sopwith Camel. Oh, is, I think the Sopwith Camel is very cool, um, and it I, did. I just cannot recommend this highly enough. It is a very important piece of history for the United States. And for aviation in general, as well as these young men, to see these young men, they weren't drafted. Nobody said, hey, will you come do this? They took it upon themselves to to put together this group of flyers and to put forth the effort to spearhead and bring the Naval Reserve to fruition. And I just think it's a story that isn't told that isn't told in schools. It should be. But uh, thankfully, we now have this uh this dVD uh this film that we can look to for for historical reference, and hats off to you, guys. it is it's an amazing, amazing piece of work.
5: Oh well, thank you very much. You. Debbie and Kevin, thanks for your interest.
0: Ah, uh, well, hopefully I will get you guys will come back on the show in the near future, I hope.
5: We'd love to. Thank
0: you. Ron, I got to find you somewhere in Culver City. Yep, I'm here. (laughs) As am I when I'm not in Whittier. (laughs) Guys, thank you so, so much again. Ron King, Uh, Derek Greer, Millionaires Unit. Thanks, guys.
3: Bye bye. Thank Thank you.
0: Bye bye. And that's always my hard part, is playing with the little red buttons. <laughs> well, and thank you, Kevin Good, for being here today. It
1: has been my pleasure.
0: I love your question about safety with the planes.
1: I know. I didn't know if they wanted to answer it or not, because it's one of those things where it's like if they did actually have a problem, then then they really don't want to talk about it. But if they just had some wings dipping and, and feeling that's, like they're going to fall out yeah. of an airplane, then that's a great story. We
0: didn't have Harrison landing <laughs> on a golf course, so... yeah. yeah. So we're okay. And, of course, we must thank your fabulous wife, Jenna St. John, for being here. And, of course, Chaucer Good, who was quite— what you guys! Who was very, very good for—he could have stayed. He wasn't getting squealy or anything. He was, it, he was
1: getting vocal. Yeah. Well— He wanted to be part of the show.
0: He wanted, he wanted to compete with Dad. So now everybody can, can see Dinner with the Alchemist. Tomorrow. Might, tomorrow. Tell them where
1: on Amazon Prime, so if you're a Prime member, you can watch that for free, and iTunes and Google Play. You can rent it or buy it.
0: Now, is it coming out on DVD or Blu-ray yet?
1: It is not. We're just doing the VOD thing, because I'm new school, and I don't know people who put these shiny discs into devices anymore. Everybody just does the, uh, you know. Oh,
0: well, I guess we're going to have to hook you up with Derek and Derek and Ron so they can tell you how to get... You know your film on shiny little devices. Those are,
1: those are great little. That's a great looking. Uh, yeah, they did a good job with this. Uh, yeah, this, uh, disc. Yeah, in yeah. the, the artwork and everything it looks fantastic. No, it's
0: fabulous. But yeah, yeah, but dinner with the alchemist is equally fabulous. Thank you, thank and you. And we're in the middle of Mardi Gras, so it's a perfect time for people to see it.
1: It is exciting. I'm. I'm. It's. It's crazy. It's been a long road. I mean, uh, Jenna was working on the script and trying to bring the movie into production when I met her. And now we are married with child, Wow! and we're finally releasing this thing. So it's it's a long a long haul and a lot of work. I've never worked on anything harder, so it's exciting. And to, I'm,
0: I'm so glad I've been along for the past two years of this journey with God, you. Me too, yeah.
1: This has been I mean, it's, fun. It's exciting to push our little Bambi out into the, the forest by itself now.
0: Well, and you will come back on the show again.
1: Of course, absolutely. <laughs> You've
0: got so many projects going on that you have to.
1: <laughs> we say that uh, Dinner with the Alchemist is Chaucer's older brother. That was our first child, so...
0: Yes, well, I want to see Gwendolyn Dangerous. I want to see something happen mm-hmm. with that.
1: Me too. It's coming. It's coming.
0: Because I love that that pilot show you did. Oh,
1: great! We're working hard on it. We have a, a, a like a more episodes. It's, you will see it.
0: Oh, wonderful! It's in the works. All yeah. right, yeah, because you have to come back and talk about that. It is a retro sci-fi, a la Flash Gordon, and it is amazing.
1: That's exactly it. Yeah.
0: Well the dogosaurus is an alien. <laughs>
1: Flash Gordon with a Dogosaurus. They had a Lizardosaurus in the original Flash Gordon, so I figured... Yeah,
0: you got a Dogosaurus. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is all the time we have today before Pam, like, gives me the evil eye in there. So, next week, Mark Pellington. It's up in the air whether Mark's going to be calling in live because he's going to be in New York shooting a pilot, or if we're going to pre-record him later this week. But no matter what, we will have something from Mark Pellington next week to talk about his new film, Nostalgia. In the meantime, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.